0: Welcome to Reconciliation Roundtable, a new podcast where we discuss building bridges of understanding across religious and political difference. I'm your host, Mark Beckwith, retired Bishop of the Diocese of Newark in the Episcopal Church. There are forces and voices in our increasingly polarized world that want us to view each other in the issues of the day in a binary way, this or that, good or bad. I want to invite you on a journey beyond the safety of our silos and our egos to the soul where we have the opportunity to see things differently. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to find more content like this, please visit my website at www.markbeckwith.net where you can listen to more episodes, read my weekly blog, and sign up to get weekly reflections in your inbox. I also explore the themes of this podcast further in my book, Seeing the Unseen, Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. Today, my guest is the Reverend Dr. May Lise Cannon, who has been the Executive Director for Churches for the Middle East Peace since 2016. Uh, that's an organization that goes back to 1984, and we'll get into the current crisis in a bit. She's ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church. She has two doctorates, one in American history with a minor in Middle East studies, and another in spiritual formation. She's the author of several books, including the Social Justice Handbook, Small Steps for a Better World. She speaks and writes regularly, and recently she offered the reflection, the sermon at Harvard Memorial Church, and we'll get to that in a bit. Dr. Cannon, May, welcome. Welcome to this time together. It's my pleasure to greet you and to have this time together.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: May, before we get to the current crisis, what drew you to the Middle East from an academic and a personal and a faith perspective? What was the the draw?
1: I had wanted to go to Israel from the time I was a little, little girl. And I don't know kind of where that initially came from. Maybe it was the felt boards. I'm so old that when I was in Sunday school, they had felt boards where they told the Bible stories. Do you know what I'm talking about? I remember. Like, where I remember. Little, yeah. <laughs> little felt camels up yeah. on the, up up on the board, and you know, when I graduated from high school, my parents their gift to me was going to be to send me, you know, on a spiritual pilgrimage to Israel. And for some reason, every time I was supposed to go, something intervened. You know, there was either a death in the family or a war in the region. So, I didn't end up going until much, much later in life on a spiritual pilgrimage.
0: And you've been, presumably, several times since.
1: I I have. I have. I had the great uh, privilege. The first time I went I was serving as a pastor of a church, and I went on what many might consider a traditional Bible tour to see the holy sites and you know, to visit Bethlehem and Jerusalem and the Sea of Galilee. And that trip was quite transformative because I was introduced to local Christians, Palestinian Christians, who I didn't even at that point know. I thought Palestine was just a map in the back of my Bible. I had no context for anything about the contemporary geopolitics or anything like that. Um, And then after that, I ended up doing doctoral research in Israel. And then I had the privilege of living in Jerusalem over the course of 2010 and 2011.
0: my goodness. So, you have been engaged in the various dimensions of life in that part of the world. I remember somebody saying, it probably has the most historical trauma of any part on the world's landscape. And reconciliation was a key piece of Martin Luther King's nonviolence perspective. It also features in the goals of Churches for Middle East Peace. And as we look at the current crisis, this horrible tragedy unfolding in the Middle East, how do you see reconciliation Being possible, what elements would you suggest that the various parties engage in?
1: That's a great question. And I love the title of your conversation, you know, the reconciliation roundtable. And I I was jotting down notes, you know, beyond prejudices. It's interesting when you, um, at least prior to October 7th of this year, if you would talk to people, uh, many people in Israel, you know, Jewish Israelis. If you talked to them and said the word justice, they would say that justice was a bad word. They would see justice as being a word that wasn't sensitive to the legitimate security needs of Israel or to peace. But if you would talk to people on the Palestinian side of the green line or the separation barrier, Palestinians would say peace was a bad word, that peace was just an excuse for the status quo, or that peace was a word that was used to not address concerns about human rights or concerns about Palestinian perspectives in terms of military control. And so even the question, honestly, Mark, in terms of what reconciliation would look like is a loaded question because many people would say, why are you starting with reconciliation when you're ignoring core realities that exist? And so Palestinians would say, no reconciliation without justice. Which is why I started with the perspective of peace is a bad word for one side and justice is a bad word for the other, right? Which I think is important to understand. And in this very moment, when we look in response to what happened in October 7th, a a similar perspective is that one side of the conflict, not that any side is monolithic in any way, but one side is demanding a pastoral response. One side is demanding empathy and grief and lament, and the other side is demanding a prophetic response and saying, wait a minute, now is not the time for grief and lament. Now is the time for action and responsiveness. And I I think that's really important for those of us who are not Uh, living there, those of us who are not Israeli or not Palestinian, to understand that the demands of all of those who are involved are starting from very, very different perspectives.
0: Yeah. Well, I was uh, talking to a good friend of mine yesterday who's a rabbi, and he's been to the Middle East many, many, many times, and he said his sense of it it, is that there's such intense pain that everyone is experiencing such that they can't acknowledge or understand the pain of somebody on the other side. The pain is just so Uh, overwhelming.
1: I, I had a conversation very similarly with an Israeli this week who was saying it's not even fair of us to ask them to. He was speaking of the Israeli Jewish community and he said, it's not fair to ask them to be able to empathize with the pain of the other, but he said, we can ask them to still be moral in this moment. And so he was talking about just what you articulated, that there is so much trauma and so much pain, so let's not demand of them something that is an unrealistic expectation. But his expectation of his own people, you know, as an Israeli, um, <clears throat> is the expectation of morality in response to, you know, he was speaking specifically in response to what's happening in Gaza right now.
0: The morality of how do we get to that? How do we uh, engage people together? You have an organization that has 30 different national Christian groups that have been part of Churches for a Middle East Peace with an array of leaders that have a lot of wisdom and commitment and passion. and what do you see the role of Churches for Middle East Peace at this moment?
1: I thought that when you were describing um, our denominations, I thought you were going to say, and a lot of differences. <laughs> you wow. know, our, we have 34 denominations right now, and there are more differences between them than similarities. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Evangelical, mm-hmm. Peace Churches. And so the fact that they come together around any issues, let alone around peace building in the Middle East, is really miraculous it's It's quite profound. But the group has come together as a coalition committed to nonviolent engagement in peace building in the Middle East. And part of our mission, we say educate, elevate, and advocate. And I think at this moment, our work is all the more critical. The vast majority of Americans really don't know much about what's happening in the region and forgive me i was someone who had three masters degrees and was getting my first phd the first time i went to israel i i thought and i had my first book coming out i thought i was hot stuff i mean i i knew a thing or two about the world you know boy did israel humble me We just don't know a lot as Americans about what reality is like for Israelis, for Palestinians, you know, for life in Gaza. I've had the great privilege of being in Gaza numerous times, and the vast majority of Americans don't understand that the more than 2 million people living in Gaza are Palestinian and the vast majority are are civilians who just want to raise their children to have a an opportunity for a prosperous future. They are mothers who um, want their children to be able to live in peace, just like Israeli mothers want their children to not have to serve in the Israeli military, you know, and they want their children to be able to live in security. So I think some of those basic fundamentals of education are really, really critical at this moment. I think also the role of Churches for Middle East Peace, we have relationships with Christians, not only in Gaza. There are about a 1,000 Christians, really less in Gaza specifically, but there are Christians in the West Bank and Christians in Israel. And so we um, have a close relationship with the Christian community in the Holy Land And then also partners, you know, that are committed to peace building and to equality and human rights and in the Palestinian territories. And so understanding what the humanitarian needs are, and right now those are so, so devastating in Gaza, and I hope we'll talk about that a little bit, and understanding what daily life is like, but then also knowing what opportunities there are for alternatives to war, of which there are many, many alternatives to war. And our perspective would be that violence begets violence and that while Israel has legitimate security needs, the mechanism of Israel seeking security has been through military control. And I think one of the things that we learned from October 7th is that that has not been effective, that that 2 million people living under a military blockade for more than 16 years has not resulted in safety and security for Jewish people in Israel. And so we absolutely have to condemn the actions of Hamas on October 7th. I mean, it was so utterly horrific. And I think we have to encourage alternative means of protecting Jewish people and combating anti anti-Semitism that are not militaristic, that are not war, because war doesn't bring lasting peace and doesn't bring lasting security for anyone. And so that's, I think, our greatest contribution at Churches for Middle East Peace.
0: Well, and to that end, or to that point, actually, you preached at Harvard Memorial Church, and I read a transcript of what you said, and you cited Deuteronomy 30, where Moses puts before the Jewish people give you life and death, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. And not that you should offer a prescription, but those of us who ascribe and are devoted to the Christian faith, how can we help choose life in a part of the world where death is just an everyday occurrence?
1: I think a few things. One you know, I had the privilege of working for World Vision for a number of years, and the founder of World Vision used to pray a prayer, and the prayer was, "Break my heart for the things that break the heart of God." And you talked about the trauma and pain that exists in this place is so profound. And I think often the Christian community in the United States, in the West, but also around the world, we have a tendency to like things black and white. <laughs> yeah. You know, we really like, like, the- like we really like right and wrong, you know, and good and bad, right? And I think that if we ask God to expand our hearts for all people and to expand our perspective and to to break our hearts for the things that break the heart of God and to deconstruct false binaries. You know, I often say there are not two sides to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And if there are two sides, it's those who stand for peace and those who do not. There is not one Jewish perspective. You know, the, the Jewish perspective towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not monolithic in any way, nor is the Palestinian perspective. And so one of the the great tensions at this moment in response to the war between Israel and Hamas has been this demand that you choose a side. You know, the Israeli Defense Forces started a campaign that says stand with Israel or stand with terrorism. And I think that is the worst thing ever because it is demanding an allegiance to a state or this false bifurcation. And I would say stand with people, right? Like stand with people, not states has been something that I've been talking a lot about. And stand with Jewish people, stand against anti-Semitism. And if you truly care about Jewish people in Israel, you have to care about their Palestinian neighbors. You have to. And if you truly care about Palestinian human rights, you have to care about security for Jews in Israel. You have to. And there's not much room. I mean, in Israel right now, it's considered incitement if you advocate for Palestinians in Gaza. Mm -hmm. There is a campaign right now. There are 20% of the Israeli population, 20% of citizens of Israel are actually Arab citizens of Israel. And there is a reality that's happening right now in Israel where Palestinian citizens of the state are being viewed as suspects or enemies of the state. And if they support Palestinians in Gaza, it is considered that they are potentially supporting terrorism or supporting the wrong side of the war, if you will. And this is deeply, deeply, deeply disconcerting, right? Because I think you know more than 4,000 children have been killed in Gaza since the war began. Can't we care for those children? And and why is that a bad thing, right? And there's not room for that in Israel right now. And in the United States, we have similar demands. Choose a side, right? And that's what I think we have to reject.
0: Yeah. And I'm thinking about that intense pressure that we feel in this country, and certainly when we're talking about Israel-Palestine, that any statement ultimately results in a political statement which exposes you to all sorts of ridicule. And it makes me think about worship. And I remember Old Testament scholar Walter Bruggeman saying that worship is the public processing of pain. And he cited God hearing the pain Of the jewish people enslaved in egypt i've heard the groaning of my people and thinking that we in the religious world to publicly process the pain and the challenge (laughs) is we process the pain immediately gets interpreted as a position or a policy or a platform and the the real need is to offer up this pain this trauma which goes back thousands of years. And how might we do that? How can Churches for Middle East Peace help promote that?
1: I often quote, I believe that this is an Eisenhower quote, so I'm sorry that it's not spiritual, but (laughs) um, (laughs) I believe that it was Eisenhower said, it's the task of a leader to carry the pain of your people. And I think what you just shared uh, you know, about Brueggemann in terms of worship being the public processing of pain, some of what we are called to do as the Christian community or as leaders in the Christian community is an invitation to enter into that space. I, I don't think that we can impose ourselves upon the pain of others. I mean, that's not what mm-hmm. I'm speaking of. Mm-hmm. But an invitation into the world of being a peacemaker or a peace builder is an invitation where you are going to take it from all sides. Um, And I I can speak to that firsthand. I am criticized by pro-Palestinian advocates for not ardently supporting the Palestinian cause, you know, enough and I am criticized by people that are you know, unilaterally pro-Israel because of my viewpoints of standing for justice for Palestinian. And often it's in the same day. I can give you an example. During the 2014 war between Israel and Gaza, I had a meeting uh, with the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., and I was meeting with a high-ranking official uh, of the Israeli embassy. And the message was, stop the war because of the disproportionate death of children in Gaza. You know, at that point, more than 500 children during the 2014 war had been killed. And I thought this message was not controversial. I really thought, you know, but the perspective is that children in Gaza are being raised to be terrorists. And I mean, I've spent time in Gaza. I I think that that is fundamentally not true. I think really differentiating between civilians in Gaza and Hamas and other militant groups is such a critical, critical thing to do. And, you know, this person said to me, like, I know you mean really well, but you're just naive. You're just naive. And they they kind of called me a bad name and uh, said, you're inadvertently supporting terrorism is what they said by calling for the end of bombing. Like, like, literally, that was the only message was like, end war because of the disproportionate, you know, effect on Palestinian children. and And it was probably less than an hour later that I got a call from a colleague in Jerusalem that was so angry that we had not, you know, put out a a statement or the language that we'd used in a statement. This was not with churches for Middle East peace. You know, this was in a former role. And, I got a call from Jerusalem that just said, I know you don't mean it, but you're inadvertently supporting the bombing of innocent Palestinian children. And I think that's part of when you talk about like, what what does it mean to carry pain? I think that's part of what it means to be a peacemaker is to Mm -hmm. say, I'm going to I'm going Mm -hmm. to stay in this, even though all sides are going to think we don't have it right. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking of a concept that my own spiritual director introduced to me called mandorla. It's an Italian word meaning almond. It's the shape that's created when you two circles intersect. Think Venn diagram from sixth grade math. And in medieval art, there are lots of depictions of mandorla, not a halo, a mandorla. And it's usually the intersection between heaven and earth. Today, it's the intersection between two different places red and blue in this country, Palestinian, Israel in the Middle East, and that the Mandorla, that space uh, in between, is a place of transformation, and it's a risk to go there. And I want to applaud you and Churches for a Middle East Peace for the courage to go to that Mandorla space, which is a place of transformation and to hold to it Uh, because it's much easier to take refuge in one silo or another because all the answers come easily. The solutions are very simple and straightforward. They're not accurate. They don't work, but that's where people live. So uh, this notion of Mandorla, and I'm more and more convinced that to point people or live in that mandorla is the prophetic voice that we need. Um, Mm. uh, It is the prophetic voice. Typically, we think of prophetic voices being over here or over there. I think today in this polarized world, which is perhaps ground zero in Israel and Gaza right now, but it spread out everywhere else, the prophetic voice is to invite people into that middle space, and you're going to get hammered for it.
1: (laughs) You get hammered. You do. I had the privilege of being mentored by John Perkins. I don't know if you know that name. Black civil rights activist from Mississippi. He's in his 90s. His brother was killed, beaten by white police officers. He was beaten almost to death. And he tells the story about being filled with hatred for white people. And he tells about how he he was beaten almost to death and how a white doctor kind of nursed him back to health. And and he tells about how this white doctor loved the hatred right out of him. And I think about, like, Mm. when you tell that story of the mandorla and that space in this in-between place, so much of the work I feel called to, which honestly I'm resistant to, is actually that transformative work Mm. of allowing the hatred or... Whatever that is within us or the desire just for it to be black or white because it would be so much easier to choose a side, that transformative work of allowing God to break our hearts for whichever side or whatever perspective we're not empathetic toward or like that process of like loving the hatred right out of us, I feel like Mm -hmm. that's what that transformation is that has to happen in that space.
0: Yeah, And to make witness to that, to speak to that, an example that I saw several years ago in my trip to Israel, and actually it was highlighted in an article today by Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times, I think it's called Family Promise Anyway, it's a gathering of Israeli and Muslim people, each of whom have lost somebody to violence in their family from the other side. And I remember listening to an Israeli father whose daughter was killed by Arab terrorists and a Muslim wife whose husband was killed by Israeli defense forces. And they each said they had to work through wanting to kill everybody on the other side. And then when they got through that, they all want to kill themselves. And they said, the only thing we had left is to be in relationship with each other. And it's an incredible witness. And that's expanding. I would. Uh, I met these folks oh maybe ten years ago, and Christoph, who writes for the New York Times, wrote about it today. I think it's it's moving forward. What an incredible witness! And there are lots of witnesses like that in that part of the world, and they have every reason to go hide under a rock. Of course, no rock is safe now in that part of the world. But you know, and just say, <laughs> "I'm done."
1: That's right. That group's called the Parents Family Circle, and there's kind of another generation of it that's also called Combatants for Peace that was founded by some of the children and some of the um, people connected also to that movement. And Combatants for Peace are former combatants, former um, Israeli soldiers and former militants who have taken up arms on the Palestinian side and one of the things that the parents circle and combatants for peace do together and churches for middle east peace has been able to support this over the years is that every year they do a joint memorial service for lives that have been lost in the conflict and israeli and palestinian lives and saying that all of these human beings you know be they israeli or be they palestinian matter and so it's a joint service in arabic and in hebrew and in english and My understanding is that millions of people join online. We sponsor it and do screenings of it and things like that. And it's a revolutionary act because there's so many spaces where that's considered actually controversial. And it's really, really beautiful to see people come together across those divisions to say that we're more united than we are apart. We have more in common than we do differences.
0: Well, that's an incredible witness. And as you are working toward helping to create peace in the Middle East, you have all these partners, part of Churches for Middle East Peace. And then we have the Christian landscape, and there are differences of opinion (laughs) on who God is, who Jesus is, uh, what life means, all of that, and how to proceed with the Mideast peace. Where do you find the biggest challenge in working with a variety of Christian groups? Where's the most resistance?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there's there's kind of two places. And interestingly, they're the furthest apart and they're the most alike. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's with the the most progressive and the most conservative. In terms of Christian diversity, I would say one of the greatest challenges comes with theological conservatives, with pe- People or denominations who have theological assumptions about God's ordination of either the state of Israel as the manifestation of restorationism, the the idea of the Jews' restoration to their historic homeland, and the eschatological assumptions of what that might mean in terms of the end times and Christ coming again— And the idea, I mean, many people who would have some of those viewpoints about the end times would believe that this moment is just another example that Christ is going to return again very soon Um, Mm -hmm. because of unrest and war being a sign of the end times being near. I sometimes have said I should write the New York Times bestseller and make a lot of money and then use it for peace because that can be a very hot topic, if you will. A lot of people are very, very interested in end times conversations. And honestly, you know, I've been quite discouraged in that. Uh Russell Moore is the editor of Christianity Today and you know, when the the war started on October 7th, he came out with an editorial that said, you know, Christians have to stand with Israel and he was speaking about the state of Israel, you know, and he gave some reasons for that and I wrote an op-ed that was published in the religious news services, and I said, "Wait a minute, Christians have to stand with people." And I I was so frustrated with his moral demands that were were political. I mean, he was talking about standing with our brothers and sisters, you know, in terms of the political aspirations of the state of Israel. And I was about—I felt like he was ignoring so many people and so many realities. And I would encourage people to read it because I felt like. He made a lot of theological assumptions that I just think are really, really damaging to people, mm-hmm. to Jewish people and Palestinian people. And so I find that perspective very problematic. But on the same side, there are certain liberal Christians you know, who are on the far left who would say, if you don't use this terminology, you're not on the side of God, right? If you are not prophetic in this way, you know, using these terms, and they are just as recalcitrant and just as black as white as the as the conservatives are, just with different rhetoric or different issues. Yeah. Um and I find that quite limiting and frustrating and equally problematic, if you will.
0: Well, I I think also I've certainly had encounters with certain Christians who whose reading of eschatology, the end times, suggest that when Jesus comes back, he's coming back to Jerusalem first and Jews will have the opportunity to convert. If not, well, too bad, but we need Jews. They need to be the canary in the mine. And so that speaks to some of the support of Israel, when in fact, some of these same Christians say, the only way we can enter into God's realm is if we become Christian. So there's almost a contradiction in terms around that, which is really uh, rather frustrating. (laughs) Where do you find the biggest hope in the the Christian communities that you're connected with and you hear from?
1: I think one of the things I say often is that despair is the luxury of the privileged. And so I find the biggest hope in the Christian communities, I mean, right now in the Christian communities in Palestine. I mean, there are only about 800 Christians living in Gaza today, and they have been devastated by the current war between Israel and Hamas. You might have heard of the bombing. There was a bombing of a house that was right next to an Orthodox Church, uh, St. Porphyrius Church, and 18 people were killed in the church that were in an annex of the church. My understanding is most of them, if not all, were Christian. One of my closest friends, her aunt, was killed in that bombing, and the Christian community there is just devastated and yet they are continuing to have faith and they are continuing to pray and they are continuing to be steadfast and they're continuing to call on brothers and sisters in Christ around the world to say don't forget us you know don't don't ignore our realities don't abandon us you know and yeah. i think if they're not going to give up hope like who are we to give up hope right yeah. so i find that inspiring
0: mm, yeah no i appreciate that and clearly you uh are not susceptible to despair. Your passion, your energy, your wisdom, and your commitment just certainly inspires me and hope others will be listening to this. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for the Christian witness that you make and the prophetic positions that you take, which always suggests you're going to get Pushback, that's a light word for it, on all sides. Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon, thank you so much for this time. How can people follow you, get a hold of you?
1: Sure, thank you. Thanks for that question. Um, I'd encourage people to sign up for our newsletters. So Churches for Middle East Peace is always very active. We normally have a bulletin we send out once a week. Right now, we are actively calling for a ceasefire and advocating, of course, for the release of the hostages that are being held. We're doing prayer gatherings every Wednesday. I'm doing daily briefings online that I've been doing since October 7th. And then we do a briefing where people can ask questions every week on Thursday. We'll keep doing that until the war is over. We're all in in terms of advocating for peace in the middle of this moment. We would invite people to join us during Advent. You know, you talked about the transformational process of entering into this kind of place of mandorla. And we would invite people to consider engaging and calling for peace, not only praying for it, but advocating for it with our elected officials. And so the best way is through our website um, at www.cmep.org.
0: www.cmep.org. Right. And and to get, follow you, is there ways to follow you directly?
1: I'm on social media and my, uh, I do you call it social media tags? I'm not like I'm not that hip in terms of what all those things yeah, are no called, one. but it's just my name. <laughs> yeah, so May Elise Cannon. So M A E, and then it's like at May Elise Cannon. So I'm on Great. Facebook oh, I'm and Twitter and uh, all those things.
0: Well, again, thank you for this time together for Reconciliation Roundtable. Again, I'm Mark Beckwith, retired bishop in the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, and the author of Seeing the Unseen Beyond Prejudices, Paradigms, and Party Lines. May, thank you. And I look forward to connecting with CMEP and following the work that you're doing because it's it's holy work. It's holy work. and Thank you for that.
1: May it be so. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Reconciliation Roundtable. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and visit markbeckwith.net stay up to date with new episodes, blog content, and other news. Please, if you could, rate and review this podcast on iTunes. It helps new listeners to find us.